Good afternoon. To say that was quite interesting. I think uh, the trick with public reading of scripture is that everyone should read the same thing, right? So uh, I think uh, the idea is that if you focus on the screen, then you will all read the same thing. I think we are all very beholden uh, to the versions we have in our hands. So the version, the words will change slightly. That's when you hear, you know, it's like a stutter. Um, but like Vijay said, it's important for us to read the word of God out loud because as much as we are all very inclined in our modern times to be very rational and very evidence-based, as they call it, the Bible says that there's power in God's word. And for us to not take advantage of that, or not even to try, is probably a big shortcoming that we have, um, not just us, but, but in general. So I think we should emphasize the reading of God's word. So our, uh, our aim today is to cover the passage that we just read, which is the end of Joshua chapter 5 to Joshua chapter 6. And Joshua chapter 6 talks about the conquest of the city of Jericho. And this is the major, you could say, turning point of Joshua because in essence, everything has been building up to this. They have crossed the Jordan, which was the big obstacle, but crossing the Jordan was not the point. They had to cross the Jordan to get into the promised land. And when they got into the promised land, they had to conquer the cities and the nations that were in front of them. And so we read about them crossing the Jordan. We read about the memorial stones that God gave them in order to, for them to remember and reflect when they were entering into battle about God's faithfulness in the past and how he would be there with them in the present as well. And, we re- and lastly, we looked at some of the instructions that God gave to the children of Israel before they proceeded into battle. But this is the battle. And, and from chapter 6 to chapter 13, you know, we see a lot of battles and incidents in Canaan, but none of them are as prominent as the battle of Jericho. It's the only one that has an entire chapter devoted to it. And the importance of Jericho from a ge- geographical perspective, you know, it was, a, it was a big city in the region. It was the entry point from the Jordan into the wider land. But also the importance of it in the Bible is because it was the first city captured by Israel. And therefore, in a sense, it symbolized the entire takeover. Because once the biggest city or the most important city fell, you kind of assume that the rest will follow. So the other battles in the book of Joshua are compared, the other kings are compared to the battle and the king of Jericho. In fact, in Joshua's summary at the end of his life about the battles, Jericho is the only one that he mentions by name because it highlighted that God's promises to Israel would come to fruition and and that the, the fulfillment of those promises had begun. And in a way, this is an an easy sermon to preach because one aspect of it is actually highlighted in scripture. So if you read uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 30 in, in in the hall of fame of faith chapter, it says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. 
So what's the point of the Battle of Jericho? Hebrews chapter 11 and 30 gives us one aspect of it. It's how a commentator says, for the Christian, the fall of Jericho represents an example of the power of faith in God. Without this faith, nothing can happen. With this faith, however, and the faithful obedience that it brings about, the Christian can overcome any obstacle in life, no matter how great. You know, there's a song that children sing called Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. But in reality, he didn't actually fight it. Right? God fought. Joshua did what God asked him to do and the walls fell down. And so that you see in the beginning of chapter 6, verse 2, it says that the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. And so they obeyed God's instructions and won the battle that God had already told them at the beginning that you are going to win. So that's the point. We can all go home. Right? But if you read Joshua chapter 6, and, and if you read Joshua chapter 5, and if you read Joshua chapter 7, in context, and if you look at the whole of Israel's history, if you look at the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, if you look at what has happened in the book of Joshua so far, if you look at the memorial stones, if you look at chapter 5, where God insisted that the generation that came out of, uh, of Egypt, but the generation that had come out of the desert, out of the wilderness, out of the wilderness wandering, they had to be circumcised. He said, you mark yourself as once again being separated to God. And then if you read chapter 7 and the fall of uh, Achan and the, and, and the rest of what comes afterwards, to say that the lesson of Jericho is that faith will overcome mountains, as true as it is, is to miss a substantial portion of the emphasis that is drawn in the scripture, in Joshua. So we're not saying that Hebrews chapter 11 is wrong, but rather Hebrews chapter 11 is highlighting a particular aspect of this battle, but it's not the complete emphasis of the book of Joshua or of chapter six. It is one aspect, but not the whole. And, and you get a clue of this. The only mention of the actual battle of Jericho in the reading that you just read comes in verse 20 and 21. In the entirety of the portion that you read, the only mention of the battle itself, what happened, comes in verse 20 and 21. The rest is all like preamble and postscript. It's like, you know, you go into a movie, say there's a movie which you saw a trailer for, which had a lot of uh, action promise, right? Like Lord of the Rings, the two towers. You're like, yes. It's going to be amazing. There's going to be a battle at the end and it's going to be long and it's going to be you know, well shot. It's going to take like 45 minutes. Right? That movie actually, I think, had an ending which was like a battle which was like, took like a whole hour or something. But imagine that you went excited into that theater and then there was like two hours of talking and then there was the, a battle scene in about two minutes and then there was under half an hour of things that came after the battle, you'd be like, well, what is the point? And so the writer wants you to ask, what is the point that the battle is already told that you will win it, and then the whole of the battle is condensed into two verses? He wants us to know that the buildup is the point. The writer's emphasis lies not in the battle, but somewhere else, and that is what we need to find out. 
And so you begin by looking at the beginning of this portion, which is in chapter 5, verse 13 to 15. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So as Joshua enters Jericho, he sees a man standing before him. It's very clear that nobody else sees this man. Now, we don't know if that is because he appeared only to Joshua or Joshua was walking by himself, but he appeared to Joshua and to no one else. And clearly, this is not any angel, but God himself, because Joshua worships him, and God is the only one who accepts worship. No angel will accept worship. And the same captain or the commander of the army is the one who gives the instructions from verse 2 of chapter 6. He is the one who gives them all the instructions. So this is God. And then you notice what is emphasized when God appears before Joshua. First off, he is bearing a sword and he has drawn it. So he's standing before Joshua with a drawn sword. And there's like two times in the Bible where you see a picture of a drawn sword. The first one is when Balaam is riding his donkey to, to go work for the enemy of Israel. And he sees an angel of the Lord. That's very clearly said to be an angel. But with a drawn sword saying, you shall not pass. And then the second time is when David takes a census in First Chronicles that angers God. And then he looks up into the sky. He sees an angel standing with a drawn sword. So the drawn sword signifies that divine judgment has come. That God is executing some judgment. And then Joshua asks, are you for us or against us? Like that's what you would ask, right? You see a strong man standing before you. The question you want to know is, are you going to kill me or are you going to kill the others? And, the, and, the, and God here says no. He doesn't actually say no to which part of the question. He only says no. And then he says, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord, which is the army of angels. And he says, I, I have come now. So Joshua asks, you know, like a partisan question, which is, are you for us or against us? But first of God reminds him, I am sovereign. I'm the commander of the armies of heaven. I'm not just someone who favors one side over the other. And then Joshua asks, what should we do in the battle? God tells us, what should we do in the battle? Now, if you go back to the movie analogy, it would be like, you know, someone would be like, uh, let's say it's like Gandalf, who's like the wizard, who's all, you know, he's very wise. He would be like, okay, you go up the front, I will flank on the side, or, or I will go up the front, you come through the back, and so on, right? Like you would expect, what should we do in battle? What is the answer that you would expect? You would expect some kind of tactics. But what does God reply? He says, take off your sandals, for the place you're standing is holy. And you cast your mind back to Moses and the burning bush. 
the first thing that God asked him to do was to take off his sandals because the place you're standing is holy. If you, if you look forward to Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah has a vision of the Lord, the first thing he hears, what he's confronted with is holy, 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 holy is the Lord, the holiness of God. Before God gives his charge to his people, he demonstrates his holiness. Sometimes it is more important for God's people to recognize who God is than to know what God has planned. And if we don't remember it, God will remind us of it. And that's why sometimes plans are not given in the Bible, but always there's a demonstration of God's holiness. And you look through the portion in chapter six, you see the symbols and the demands of God's holiness throughout. The predominance of the number seven. Seven in the Bible is a number of uh, perfection, it's a number of holiness, it's a number of divinity. Then you look at the ark of the Lord which was asked to go before them. It's the holy presence of God that goes before them in the battle. And you see the number of times the word devoted to the Lord or cursed and holy is repeated. So what the commander says explicitly is affirmed in the passage that the holiness of God is important to him and the holiness of his people is important to him. Therefore, it should be important to us Therefore, it should be important to Joshua. But then you also look closely at this passage and you keep in mind the context of what we have read so far in Joshua. You also see that the holy God is the one who also communicates grace and mercy. And then it speaks of faith as a response to the grace and mercy of a holy God. So we we'll look at three aspects today. The holiness of God, the grace of God, and then faith as the response to that. Like we were just discussing, holiness is important to God. That's why he reveals himself as holy. You know, God has attributes that we find in scripture. And there are many attributes, the goodness of God, you know, the grace of God, the salvation of God. But as R.C. Sproul says, only once in scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love. The Bible does say that God is holy, holy, holy. The self-revelation of God is rooted in his holiness. That is the one that shakes the foundation of heaven and earth and brings angels and people to their knees. So what does holiness mean? It means essentially that God is incorruptible. He's incorruptible by evil and he's unstained by evil and any hint of sin. And that's an attribute of the triune God, of the Trinity. It's an attribute of each person 
of the Trinity. It's an attribute of the Godhead as a whole as well, which is why in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, it says this about Jesus Christ, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, and then it describes what that holiness is, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unstained, separate from sin and from sinners, and thereby exalted above all creation. You know, how holy is God? In Job chapter 15 and verse 15, it says this about God's holiness. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. You know, have we appreciated how holy God is that he cannot trust his holy ones? He's talking about angels. We know angels do not have the same freedom of will that human beings have in that if angels sin, they automatically become part of fallen angels or the army of Satan or whatever you want to call it. So the holy ones in Old Testament especially is the angels who have not sinned. And so God says, I'm so holy that I cannot trust the angels that have never sinned. And, 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 and when we look at the heavens, right, the heavens are separate from the earth. The earth was the place where the fall happened. And we read that all of creation is cursed, but for us, we look at the heavens, we still think of it as kind of like a, a symbol of perfection. This tastes heavenly, right? But God said, the pinnacle of perfection that you count as mankind is not pure in my sight. In, in Habakkuk, the prophet asked God, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong." He's that holy. And because he's that holy, there is a demand for judgment upon unholy, unholiness against sin. Like Habakkuk said, you cannot see evil and you cannot look at wrong, so you cannot tolerate it. From there comes the demand for judgment that God has upon sin, which is why we read in Romans chapter 1, it says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The holiness of God demands judgment upon unholiness. So when we as people seek to approach this holy God and enter into a relationship with him, what do we expect to happen? What do we expect we should be like if we are to become or to call ourselves the people of God? You know, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, which is right towards the end of Hebrews, pretty much right towards the end of, uh, or, the, or, or the beginning of the practical applications of what the writer has said. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness which, without which no one will see the Lord. So the demand for God is that if you want to approach me, if you want to see me, you yourself have to be holy, without which it is impossible to see God. 
He says, you have to abhor sin the way that I do. You have to run away from the presence of sin. You have to wash away the stain of sin. You have to not be defiled by sin in order to see me, in order to meet me. And that is a reminder that Lord, the Lord gave um, the children of Israel in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. He says, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy. Why? Because for I, the Lord your God, am holy. If you want to be called my people, you have to be holy like I am holy. God is zealous for the revelation of his own holiness and for the maintenance of the character of his people to be holy. You know, when we read this chapter, this chapter is a difficult one for many um, Christians, especially, you know, if you go to university. I know we have a few of our uh, brothers and sisters who are here in university. People will latch on to the fact that the entire city of Jericho was destroyed, including all the people, and how is that fair? Isn't that genocide? And so on. And, and it's a question that's difficult to fully address here, which we'll talk about a bit in the next point. But at least one aspect of why it was done should be clear because it's actually given in Scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16 to 18, it says, But in the cities of these peoples that your Lord is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breeds, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hevites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So the complete destruction of this people was born out of God's zeal for his people's holiness as well. And for them not to be defiled and tempted by the pagan sinful practices of the world they were going to inhabit. If you, if you have time, you should go to Leviticus and it talks about all the sins that these people engaged in. Child sacrifice, sexual sin, idol worship. And he says, if you are to be holy, you shall have no part in that. Therefore, destroy everything. And God made clear to the Israelite that more than their own holiness, one of the reasons for the people to be judged and driven out was his judgment on their own unholiness. What's well, so the judgment on the unholiness of the people of Canaan? In Deuteronomy, again, chapter 9, verse 4 to 5, it says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas because it is of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. So he has a zeal to judge unholiness. He has a zeal for his people to remain holy. Therefore, you see what happens in the battle of Jericho. So Joshua is reminded that I, the Lord, am holy. My holiness demands that you and the people be holy. And what you're going to witness is my judgment on the persistent unholiness or the sin of the people before you. And in the passage that you read, it's intriguing that verse 17 and 19, in verse 16, there's a commandment given to shout, at which point the walls are supposed to fall. But then they don't shout because Joshua adds a couple more things in verse 17 to 19. He gives them commandments 
to not take away any of the things that are devoted to destruction. So the victory is delayed so that he can remind them once again, do not defile yourself. Beware that you do not fall into the pattern of sin that these people have practiced. In a sense, that is more important than the victory that you have already been promised. And their failure to heed that leads to the downfall of the nation of Israel in chapter 7, which we'll see next week. So for the church of God, which is the new covenant people of God, purchased for God by the innocent blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, the commandment still remains. Be holy for I am holy. And the process of living up and growing to the standard of God's holiness is something we call, what do we call it? Sanctification. And sometimes we are like Joshua, God, what do you want me to do? What is your will? The only will of God that is very clearly revealed over and over in Scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then it gives a list of things you're not supposed to do. The holiness of his people is of utmost concern to God. Is it to us? You know, someone wrote this. I have had a deep conviction for many years that practical holiness and entire self-consecration to God are not sufficiently attended to by modern Christians in this country. Politics or controversy or party spirit or worldliness have eaten out the heart of, of lively holiness in too many of us. The subject of personal godliness has fallen sadly into the background. The standard of living has become painfully low in many quarters. Sound Protestant and evangelical doctrine is useless if it is not accompanied by a holy life. It is worse than useless because it does positive harm. It is despised by keen-sighted and shrewd men of the world as an unreal and hollow thing and brings your religion into contempt. You know who wrote that? A writer called J.C. Ryle in 1878. In 2006... The, the research organization Barna did a survey among born-again Christians who said three-quarters of them, 76%, say it is possible for a person to become holy regardless of their past. Very true. Slightly more than half of the born-again group, 55%, say they know someone who they would describe as holy. And roughly three out of ten born-again Christians, that is 29%, say they themselves are holy. And then they asked them more questions. They said the adults most likely to say they know someone they consider to be holy are those who describe holiness primarily as possessing a positive attitude towards God and life. So out of the 50% of Christians, born-again Christians, who said, I know someone who I would describe as holy, if you told them that holiness is a spiritual condition, that number fell because they did not understand what holiness was. They said holiness means I have a positive attitude towards God. I have a positive attitude towards life. And when someone told them, no, holiness is a spiritual condition, it's a matter of daily sanctification, that number dropped. That means not even 
30% of Christians describe themselves as maintaining the daily practice of holiness. They don't even know others who do that. So what is true in 1878 is still true in, 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 in this century. Our mind might be captured by the unfairness and the destruction of everything that you see in this chapter, but you need to be concerned about the demands of a pure and holy God for holiness in his people. But then you could ask, if the means to approach God was solely through the standard of his holiness, then not only is it impossible to approach God, but even to survive before him, right? Isaiah went into the temple of the Lord and he fell before him as dead, is what we read. So we have to thank God that the revelation of God's holiness is also combined with another aspect. When God reveals his name to the people of Israel through Moses, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 5 to 7, he says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then it goes on. In the name of the Holy Lord, there's also the proclamation of grace and mercy. Along with the judgment upon sin that is incumbent because of God's holiness, there's also the possibility of forgiveness because God is gracious and he's merciful. And one aspect of his grace and mercy is seen obviously in this chapter, in that he fights the battles that are impossible for us to win. In verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, Jericho was shut up inside and outside. That means fully closed. It's impossible for a people who wandered in the desert like Israel, who have no military tools, cannons or, or bludgeoning rams or whatever they would have used. It was impossible for them to get into Jericho. So God steps in and says, I have given Jericho into your hand. So that's an aspect of grace. He fights the battles that are impossible for us to win. But with relation to holiness, the aspect of grace that we should focus on is his patience, as we read in chapter Exodus. He's slow to anger. He's long-suffering in dealing with sinful people, waiting for them to acknowledge his holiness and return to a relationship with him, their creator, and postponing judgment. That is long-suffering. You know, I read this anecdote that sometime, I don't know, probably in like, I guess 1980s or 1990s, there was this lady who was, who used to work for this magazine called TV Guide. She wrote that she, she had a runaway correspondence with her gas company. One month she would get a note, this is I guess, it's before emails, so definitely, you know, 80s or 90s. One month she would get a letter informing her she had underpaid her bill. The next time that she had overpaid, and she got confused. So he said, re- but then she says, uh, you know, recently the whole thing was cleared up because she received a form card, a form which contained a number of standard reasons for irregularities in accounts, such as signature is incomplete, pay not this company, that means you made the check out to the wrong company. But none of them applied to her. But on the back of the card, skipping all the printed boxes, which are the common reasons why someone is in problem with the account, 
was penciled by hand in a patient, but the writer says, but long-suffering hand. It says, you have been paying the date, please pay the amount. God's patience is like that. It's with people who miss the point and wonder what's happening. And then God steps in. He gives them opportunities. He gives them the revelation. He keeps reminding them and he says, pay the amount. Stop fooling around. You know, For the children of Jericho, for the people of Canaan, in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16, God speaks to Abraham and he prophesies that the children of Israel shall come back here, which is the very land that they're about to take, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He says in 400 years, this people will conquer this land because then... Till then, I will wait for their sins, the portion of their sins, to be complete. They had 400 years. And you ask, okay, did they hear? How did they hear? Did someone tell it to them? That's why when you read chapter 6, it spends as much time on the rescue of Rahab, which in the Hebrew Bible is like 86 words, to the destruction of Jericho, which takes 102 words. Because it wants you to remind, it wants you to be reminded that there is Rahab, who in chapter 2, verse 9 to 11, said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, and what you did to the two kings. Verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, Our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And so Rahab took upon the grace of God's offer and she was rescued while the rest of Jericho fell under judgment. So she is seen as the example or the exemplar of a patient God who wishes to draw all people to himself. Regardless of whether they are Israelite or they are Gentile. You know, Abraham argued with God, will you not judge Sodom if there are 50 righteous men? And God said, I will not judge Sodom. And then it went down to 40 and 30 and, 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 and you know what happens. He sends Jonah to Nineveh. He says, you prophesy to them that I will destroy you in 40 days until you repent, unless you repent. And they repented. And that was Jonah's whole problem with God. The grace of God provides a means to approach him where his holiness would deem it impossible for sinful people to enter into his presence and into a relationship with him. But the problem that people have is that they presume on the grace of God and so they forget about the judgment of God. So for 400 years, They had an opportunity, but then the judgment fell. You know, Paul reminds the Jews in Romans chapter 2, it says in verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
you know, a poet wrote this, there's a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. To pass that limit is to die. And so the grace of a long-suffering holy God extends to you the potential for you to turn to him today. Every day that you have is the grace that God gives you to return to him if you're not already with him. Which is why the Bible says, today is the day of your salvation because you do not know tomorrow what is going to happen. Which is why in the book of Hebrews, you know, he exhorts the Christians, if you hear his voice today, you obey him. You know, there are many battles that we cannot win. And there was a battle that we could not win, which was to enter into a relation with the holy God because the, the door of heaven was shut. Sin and the enemy stood in the way of approaching a holy God. There was no sacrifice. There was no offering that could come close to what is needed for our sins to be separated from the sight of a holy God who cannot look upon evil. And so the long-suffering and patient God gives us a way to approach his holy throne. A greater Joshua Jesus Christ, he's innocent, he's unstained by sin. He's holy. He came into this world to take upon our sins and fight the battle that we cannot fight. He broke, broke down the walls of sin that separated us from a holy God by dying for us and taking the judgment of God upon sin that is meant for us. The blood of Christ that purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God as Hebrews says. The grace of a long-suffering and holy God is what is revealed in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is holy, but he is also patient and gracious and long-suffering, and he offers the means by which you can approach him. And that means is not closed. He recognizes that we are fallen people, that we are still prone to fall to sin and unholiness. And so the promise of God is there in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. It says, because Jesus Christ resurrected and he lives for us today, and he is willing and able to appeal on our behalf, he says, let us then draw with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's the extension, the offer of a holy God made in grace and mercy to a people who cannot approach him otherwise. So then what is our response to that? And that response is faith. You know, it's a rich topic and some aspects of it only we can cover today. You know, faith, what is Christian faith? Christian faith is not faith in something as, as our brother was reminding us before. It's faith in someone. Saving faith is faith in God, not faith in knowledge or, or some abstract idea of what's going to happen. And just like it is impossible to see God without holiness, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. So it's impossible to see God without holiness. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So what are some aspects of faith that we can draw from this portion? The main one is that faith is obedience. You see, the commander, God, gives Joshua a list of particular instructions that they need to follow and not deviating from. And, and, and deviating from that is sin. 
as we'll see in the next chapter. So faith is obedience to God's revelation. And specifically, saving faith is obedience to God's specific revelation about how we are to approach him. That's why in Hebrews chapter 11, again in verse 31, it says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spice. It's encapsulating everything that Rahab did. But you look at Rahab's confession in chapter two, if you go back home and read it in verse nine to 11, she affirms that the Lord your God is God on heaven and on earth. She affirms the exclusivity of God and his sovereignty over all things. Her confession affirmed God's demand that he is acknowledged as the one true God. That was her faith. She responded as God demanded in his holiness. It did not matter if you were not a Jew or if your family had other gods or you had cultural problems with acknowledging God as the only God in heaven and on earth. She did. And that was counted to her as faith. So there was one way and all of Jericho was shut up to that way except one window that lay a little bit open with a scarlet cord lying out. Faith is obedience to what God has revealed is the means to approach him. What is the means for us to approach God today? You enter into that relationship as we read, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that God says you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the specific way of faith. You cannot approach him any other way. So there's the aspect of faith in obedience to the initial revelation of God, but there's also an ongoing commitment Faith is a lifestyle, which is why the Bible says the righteous shall live by faith. That it's a lifestyle that seeks to honor and please God and be holy like he's holy. You know, all these commandments were given to Israel to teach them how to live in the land after they had won the victory and, and their failure to do so is what led to their downfall, to their defeat in the life of faith. You know, Hebrews talks a lot about holding on to the life of faith. In chapter 10, verse 37 to 39, it says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Faith is an ongoing commitment to live the life that God wants us to live. He has given us his revelation. His will is for us to live holy lives. And faith means to be obedient to God to the entirety of his calling. It means not presuming in his grace to live unholy lives. It means we can't imagine that we have a claim on God's grace while simultaneously defiling his name. You know, Hebrews gives us the encouragement in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. But lest you miss the point, it ends with a warning. That same chapter, chapter 12, verse 15 to 17, it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral and unholy like Esau. 
It says, run to Jesus. And you can take hope from the fact that he sits before you. And so you can lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. But it warns you. Therefore, see to it that you, fail, you do not fail to obtain the grace of God like Esau who became unholy. Without holiness, it is impossible to see God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. So the question for us is that when we stand before a holy God drawn with us, you know, who has a drawn sword of judgment, who expects his people to respond in holiness and thereby to approach him in grace and mercy that he has extended, how do we respond? What is our faith? May his name be glorified. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for our time today for your word that, uh, that gives us uh, so many opportunities to reflect on your holiness and your character, but also on your grace and mercy that enables us uh, weak and, uh, and, and, and sinful flesh to enter into your presence because you have made a way for us to do so. We, are, we recognize you, God, that you are the one who has fought our battles, including the greatest battle of all that we, which we could not win, which Jesus Christ won for us on the cross of Calvary. But we remind ourselves a lot today from your word that the battle is ongoing, that life is not to be taken lightly, that we are called to live lives of holiness. And you have again provided us the means of grace and mercy to run to in time of need, but that you expect us a lot to be a people separated unto God, to be sanctified and to live in holiness and to not be defiled by the sins of the world around us. So we ask a lot for your continuing grace and mercy and for the strength of character that is needed to endure in a world with many temptations. But we recognize that we have no other choice other than to be holy by being found in Jesus Christ and to seek upon your grace and mercy in our time of need so that we can approach you and that we can live in a relationship with you. So we ask a lot for your kindness to be with us as we head out into the world this week. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.